Welcome, I'm Prudence Robertson, and this is EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. Prayer on the field. In addition to the Dobbs case, the Supreme Court is expected to rule on a case involving a football coach who was fired for praying after games. Hiram Sasser, who serves as executive legal counsel for coach Joe Kennedy, joins us to discuss the high-profile case. World Meeting of Families. More than a thousand families gather in Rome to attend the 10th World Meeting of Families celebration. EWTN Vatican Bureau Chief Andreas Tonhauser joins us from Rome to share all the important details from this event. Addressing key needs. We take a look at how pro-abortion people fail to understand the needs of expecting mothers amid unplanned pregnancies. We're joined by Herbie Newell, president of Lifeline Children's Services, one of the largest evangelical adoption agencies in the country, who tells us what women need in a possible post-Roe era. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has declared this week Religious Freedom Week. We are all, of course, awaiting for an official announcement in the Dobbs decision, but there's also another noteworthy case for Catholics concerning religious freedom that we expect to hear from the justices on very soon. Kennedy versus Bremerton School District is the case of Joe Kennedy, a retired high school football coach from Washington State who sued the school district in which he used to work. He says they violated his First Amendment rights. When Kennedy used to coach games, he had a tradition of praying on the field when the game was done. At times, he was joined by many of his students. However, Coach Kennedy was asked to stop praying publicly during his tenure. When he didn't stop praying, he was fired. I'm joined now by Hiram Sasser with First Liberty Institute, who serves as executive legal counsel for Coach Kennedy in this case. Hiram, thanks for joining me. Would you start by summarizing this case and tell us how it's made its way all the way to the Supreme Court? Well, sure. I mean, uh, Prudence, this case just started off as Coach Kennedy uh, wanted to be able to pray uh, by himself after the football games on the 50-yard line, where he already was because he was going to be talking to the coach from the other side uh, after the game anyway. It's sort of a normal thing coaches do. And uh, rather than kneel down and tie his shoe, uh, he was just going to kneel down and for 15 seconds say uh, a mostly silent prayer. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, the school district never had a problem with this for eight years. But then uh, because somebody actually complimented the school district, they decided to, uh, because the coach was doing this, they decided to launch an investigation. And uh, that ultimately led to him being fired. And so then we had to sue. And, and it's been making its way through the courts for seven years. And now we're at the Supreme Court on, on the precipice of what we hope to be a, a, a victory for Coach Kennedy and for all public school officials across the country that they don't have, have to hide their faith whenever they go to work. Certainly. Seems very simple. And Hiram, there are reports that many of Coach Kennedy's students used to willingly join him in prayer on the field and that they even got to the point where they invited opposing teams to join them, too. Such a beautiful thing. But critics of Coach Kennedy say that his prayers were an improper endorsement of religion. Now, were they? Yeah, you know, the uh, what happened was some of the kids uh, over the time, over the years, asked, you know, well, what are you doing out there? They didn't even know what he was doing. And he said, well, I was, I'm praying, you know, for for uh, uh, thanks that uh, everyone uh, made it okay and no one got hurt, those sorts of things. And uh, they asked if they could join him. And he said, look, it's a free country. You can do whatever you want. Now, 
what ended up happening when the school district said they did not want the players, him pr praying with the players, he had no problem with that. He just wanted to be able to pray by himself. But, and so he, he decided, okay, I'm just going to pray by myself and I'll do it at a time when the players wouldn't join. But then when he did that by himself, they decided that wasn't good enough because people could see him kneeling down and they knew what he was doing, according to the school district. He must be praying. And so they had to stomp that out. And that's what ultimately led to the case. Mm, so interesting. And critics of Kennedy are also saying that this is an issue of separation of church and state. But isn't that concept separate from a person's right to pray by themselves? Can, can you explain this? Well, sure. I mean, just because uh, someone works in, in public employment, uh, in this case, a, a, a coach, but it could be a teacher. I mean, it could be a, a, a fireman. It could be anybody. Uh, just because they're in public employment doesn't mean that everything that they do, they're doing on behalf of the government. And so there are times when, like, a teacher might uh, be at the lunch cafeteria and decide that she wanted to pray silently by herself before the meals. Now, if she bows her head, closes her eyes, some people might know what she's doing. Uh, she's not doing that on behalf of the government. She's doing that between her own relationship between her and the Lord. Uh, and so that's uh, something that should be protected, and it's not to be stamped out under the cover that everything that someone does in public employment is on behalf of the government, because that's frankly just not true. Right. This is a basic founding principle, you know, that we're fighting for here. And I'm sure you know a recent Sports Illustrated article says that Coach Kennedy is using his faith and football to attempt to, quote, erode democracy. But is that really true? What's going on here? I don't know where that comes from or what they're trying to convey there. One of the bedrocks of our free society and our democratic republic is that uh, we have a right to exercise our religious freedom. Uh, it was one of the most important things. It's why the, 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 the pilgrims came to Plymouth, for crying out loud. So I don't really understand where they're coming from on that. Uh, uh, maybe uh, they got a little afield from their normal football and <laughs> basketball coverage. Sure. But uh, the reality is coach just wants to be able to pray by himself. And I'm not really sure why uh, everybody is uh, so excited about uh, trying to stop him and oppressing. Mm. And one final question. I'm sure you're aware there's also a high-profile case before the court that could overturn Roe versus Wade. Could you speak to how Coach Kennedy's case could impact not just the right to pray in public, but also the rights of people whose faith informs what they believe when it comes to other contentious issues like abortion? Yeah, I got to tell you that in this country, uh, everyone wants to talk about tolerance. And part of that tolerance puzzle is to allow people of faith to be able to live the lives that they've been called to lead without uh, uh, pressuring them or without discriminating against them in any particular way. And I think this Coach Kennedy case is a really powerful case because I think it's going to give us, if, if the court rules in favor of Coach Kennedy, it will give us the opportunity to have some additional constitutional protections that are very specific that we're not going to uh, discriminate against people of faith just because we can see what they're doing out in public. Mm. Well, we're glad the court took up the case. We're anxious for the decision, and we're praying for your team. Hiram Sasser of First Liberty Institute, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. A great update from Iowa. The state's constitution no longer imposes a so-called right to abortion, paving the way for Iowans to pass pro-life laws and save more babies.
Upon hearing of this pro-life action from the state's Supreme Court, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds celebrated, saying, Today's ruling is a significant victory in our fight to protect the unborn. The Iowa Supreme Court reversed its earlier 2018 decision, which formerly made Iowa the most abortion-friendly state in the country. Every life is sacred and should be protected. And as long as I'm governor, that is exactly what I will do. With summer in full swing, we are just over four months away from the midterm elections. Republicans are hopeful that they will take back the House and perhaps even the Senate as they hope to make significant gains in both chambers. These gains would hopefully mean a pro-life majority in Congress once again. And pro-life groups are already on the ground to ensure their voters know about the importance of this year's elections. And joining me now is Mallory Carroll, Vice President of Communications at Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. Mallory, thanks for joining me. Strong voter turnout is more difficult to achieve during a midterm election season when there's no presidential candidate in the running, as I'm sure you know very well. So how is Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America tackling that challenge this year? That's right. Yeah, people are very, uh, you know, excited when they see a lot of news coverage about a big presidential race and there is historically higher turnout in presidential election years, but midterms are incredibly important. So as we have done in past midterm election cycles, we are going to visit voters directly at their homes. In fact, this week, our team has visited more than two million homes across battleground states. We're talking to pro-life people, because believe it or not, Prudence, oftentimes it's pro-life Americans who are very consistent in voting in presidential election years that need to be reminded of the importance of those congressional and um, statewide offices. So we're going directly to voters' homes, talking to them, reminding them about the importance. And we're also talking to people we've identified as being persuadable. Whether or not they vote frequently in midterm elections or not, we want them to come out and vote for pro-life candidates this November. Mm. And Mallory, what states are you all active in right now? I know you're are you, are you more focused on making gains in the House or the Senate? Uh, what's your strategy? Yes, the, the name of the game is to prevent pro-abortion control of the federal government. Um, President Biden still has two more years left to his presidency, so it's so important that we maintain pro-life control um, in one of the chambers, at least one of the chambers, and the Senate is particularly important because of the role the filibuster plays. And so we are focused on um, states like Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, places where there are going to be really tight Senate elections and where there's also significant opportunities for pro-lifers running for House races to switch some seats. Um, there's a very narrow margin in both chambers right now, and we're hopeful that uh, if we uh, if we do all of the work that we're doing um, already, laying that foundation to ensure good, strong pro-life voter turnout in November, that we could uh, take back both chambers. But it, it's really just important to maintain at least pro-life control of one. And Mallory, you know very well, we're expecting a decision in the Dobbs case literally any day. And of course, that's going to galvanize voters on both sides. And we know that when Americans learn about the reality of our extreme abortion laws, they reject abortion. So what are canvassers hearing out in the field right now? 
We've been very encouraged by what we're hearing from the canvassers. Um, so much of the coverage on the Dobbs case and the protests that are happening outside the Supreme Court, outside the justices' homes, is really revealing that inhumanity, that violence that's at the heart of the pro-abortion movement. And it's really repellent. The pro-abortion position that is espoused by the Democratic Party that's at stake here, you know, the, the current status quo that we have with Roe versus Wade that's on the line is abortion on demand up until the moment of birth. And I think that when people are seeing um, these really terrible images of protesters with, you know, fake blood, <clears throat> when they're carrying baby dolls around, when you've got pro-abortion protesters saying that they would get pregnant just so that they could kill their baby, that that is underscoring for just regular Americans at home, you know, across the country, how stark the divide is between the two sides on this. And are they going to be on the side of life or are they going to be on the side of death? Mm. We've been really encouraged by what we've heard from the canvassers that this message is breaking through. They're saying they're going to vote for pro-life candidates. Um, and that is why we're doing this. We want to have a face-to-face -face conversation with people, get that information that they need. But I do think that, um, you know, especially if the Dobbs case, it ends up being a pro-life decision, that this is going to motivate pro-life voters even more because, Prudence, this will be proof positive that our political strategy as a movement to get involved in, in democracy, you know, to get involved in politics, to use the democratic process that our founders gave us to elect champions and then work with them to pass life-saving law and policy, that that works. And so um, I, I think I, I'm, we're so hopeful, we're praying so hard for a pro-life outcome in Dobbs, believing firmly that that will help pro-life candidates once again in November. Yes, and we at EWTN are praying for just that same thing as well. Mallory Carroll, thanks for joining me today from Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America. Thanks, Prudence. The 10th World Meeting of Families celebration is taking place this week in Rome. The theme for this year's World Meeting of Families is family love, a vocation and a path to holiness. While this event has previously drawn together millions of people, this year's event has been limited to 2,000 Catholic families due to COVID-19. Pope Francis is participating in three sessions throughout the week and will celebrate Mass with families in St. Peter's Square on Saturday, June 25th. EWTN is the official media partner of this event at the Vatican. And joining us now from Rome is Andreas Tonhauser, EWTN Vatican Bureau Chief. Andreas, thanks for joining us today. Can you explain what the World Meeting of Families is and why it's so important to celebrate families all around the world? Sure, and thank you, Prudence, for having me on. So St. Pope John Paul II in 1994 initiated and started the World Meeting of Families. He's famous for pointing out that the future of humanity passes by the way of the family. And from the very beginning, there was this idea that families should come together and meet to celebrate their faith, not alone, but really as a community. And today, this is exactly what we're doing here in Rome. It's the 10th World Meeting of Families, and it's been postponed for a whole year because of COVID. For the same reason, there are only 2,000 delegate families here, and only so many were allowed to participate on behalf of all other families around the world. And that's for the importance of this meeting, the Christian concept of the family as the nucleus of society based on marriage between one man and one woman has come under attack in most regions, as has the value of human life. 
Families face many difficulties, material ones as well as spiritual ones, and are looking to the church for support and guidance. Bringing families together here in Rome and on a more local level in dioceses is a great way of strengthening and encouraging them. Yes, I could not agree more. And today is day two of the event. Can you tell us what the atmosphere has been like? What are you hearing from the families in attendance, the people that have traveled all over to Rome? So today in the morning, I participated in, in the Holy Mass at St. Peter's Basilica with the families. And it was so beautiful to see how they actually celebrated the Eucharist together. Families from Sweden, Uganda, Australia, the U.S., really from across the world. They, um, we, we have more than 120 nations here. And it just shows how international, how global the Catholic Church really is. And that we share the same faith, the same hope and the same love, and that is just beautiful. Yes, so beautiful to celebrate our universality. And I understand Pope Francis attended the opening festival as well. Can, can you tell us about his message and what other sessions he is participating at during this week? So last night at the opening festival, Pope Francis used the metaphor of the Good Samaritan. He said that the church wants to be this Good Samaritan to the families because it's not always easy to raise children. And this can be, for example, seen in the sacrament of matrimony that can be received within the church. He made sure to address all couples who gave testimonies last night, but then also reminded us that every family has a testimony to give and a specific role to play. Pope Francis invited the families to listen to the Holy Spirit to better understand their specific role. He will appear on other occasions as well, especially on Saturday, where he will celebrate the main mass in the evening uh, of this world meeting of families. And then at the Angelus on Sunday, he will send out the families. But one thing, Prudence, let me just tell you also one testimony from yesterday that we heard in the, in the Paul VI Hall where the families came together. The parents of Chiara Corbella spoke about their daughter and how she sacrificed her own life to receive her child because the young mother had tongue cancer, but she declined treatment as it could have harmed the baby she bore in her womb. And Pope Francis said that Chiara was an inspiration for our path to holiness. What a beautiful story of sacrifice and of family. Andreas, any other thoughts from this beautiful celebration? And how can people at home tune in to everything that's happening in Rome? Well, as I said before, there are only 2,000 delegates here because uh, when the meeting was planned, COVID-19 had been much more of an issue than what it is probably now. So for safety reasons, really, uh, this has been limited. And EWTN has been asked to become a media partner to make sure Catholic families around the world can participate in this, in this event, at least online and in front, or in front of their television. So a good way is to simply switch on EWTN on your television, Facebook or YouTube, as we're covering every single speech, every mass, all the prayers. And that's the easiest way to follow this event and benefit from the great speakers from around the world that were invited to share their experiences and their wisdom here. Well, you are doing an excellent job reporting on everything that's going on. Thank you so much, Andreas Tonhauser, EWTN Vatican Bureau Chief. God bless you. Thank you, Prudence. Coming up, we take a look at continued attacks on pro-life organizations and churches around the country. I speak out. Plus, the president of a large evangelical adoption agency joins us to discuss a possible post-Roe era. Next.
Welcome back to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Widespread violence against pro-life centers and Catholic churches continue. That is this week's Speak Out segment. Rage from pro-abortion activists is not just contained to the steps of the Supreme Court. It's sadly spreading all across the country. Since the Dobbs leak, nearly 30 pregnancy centers have been attacked. Since 2020, over 100 churches have been either attacked or vandalized. Many of these attacks can be attributed to the group Jane's Revenge, who recently said, we have demonstrated how easy and fun it is to attack. Now our measures may not come in the form of something so easily cleaned up as fire or graffiti. It's open season. Through attacking, we find joy and courage. In some instances, people have interrupted mass. Women have stripped during church services. Most tragically, some pro-abortion people have gone so far as to break or steal tabernacles and remove the precious body of Christ from its sacred place. These violent, sick people realize that it's not just pro-life laws that violate their way of living, their throwaway culture. It's also us, the Catholic faithful. We should not expect these attacks to stop when Roe is hopefully soon overturned. We must be vigilant and pray to St. Michael and all the archangels and saints to defend us. The pro-abortion industry prides itself in the killing of babies and fails to address the key issues mothers face when they are in crisis. In a recent op-ed published in the Washington Examiner titled, Stop Misleading Desperate Women, Abortion Isn't the Only Option, author Herbie Newell, president of Lifeline Children's Services, calls out the abortion industry for its lack of understanding when it comes to unplanned pregnancies. He says life must be protected and defended at all costs. And joining us now is Herbie Newell, President and Executive Director of Lifeline Children's Services, one of the largest evangelical adoption agencies in the country. Herbie, thanks for joining me. Tell us about your latest op-ed in which you called the abortion industry out for their lies. Yeah, I think for so many years, the abortion industry has labeled themselves as pro-choice and pro-woman. But the truth of the matter is they're really just factories of death. All they want is to bring a woman in and to take her baby away, but they don't address all of her other needs, her physical needs, her emotional needs, her mental needs, and, and of course, not her spiritual needs. But the pro-life side for years, uh, being led by the Catholic Church and a latecomer, the evangelical church, has truly been about dressing the needs of women emotional needs, physical needs, spiritual needs, and helping those women thrive and survive. And so I just pray that if Dobbs is the, the case that overturns Roe v. Wade, that our churches will be ready, yes, for the onslaught of violence, but also for the opportunity of making a difference in the lives of women. Right. And to that point, you wrote that what women need are open arms and ample resources. Could you explain what that looks like in a post-Roe world? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've had the opportunity as an organization for 41 years to, to meet and to work with women through counseling and discipleship and walking them through their pregnancy. And what we've learned is that their number one need is usually not the pregnancy. Their number one need is uh, care. It's concern. A lot of these women are coming from abused situations. They're coming from uh, immense poverty. 
And we don't need to just come in and take away a child. We need to actually come in and wrap around them to meet every last one of their needs, their, their needs for, for physical stability, to help them get jobs, to help them with life skills, to help them with their educational needs, and to put them on the right track and the right footing. And that's what we've been called to by the gospel of Christ Jesus, is to emulate the gospel, which is where Jesus came to care for the poor, the downtrodden, the oppressed, and the blind. And we as his children are now those that want to serve this population. And in so doing, we actually help a baby and we help a mom. Mm, yes. And tell us how Lifeline Children's Services specifically is helping mothers in need and how you'll continue to do so when in a matter of days, hopefully Roe versus Wade is overturned. Well, one of the things that we've been doing is we've been caring for women as soon as they get confirmation of pregnancy, helping them choose every option that they have on the life side, if that's to parent, if that's to marry uh, the father of the child, if that's to go for some type of interim care until they can get their, their feet under them and, and make a path that's best for them and their child, or maybe that includes adoption. But we also wanna work with these women and walk with these women far after they give birth to their child. And one of the reasons that we do this is because we are pro-woman and we're pro-life. And pro-life means being pro-woman. And the truth of the matter is the work that we've done will not stop. Uh, it will not cease. And, and the victory is not won if we get the decision from the courts. The truth of the matter is we've got to be even more vigilant to be ready, willing, and able to help moms and babies and children uh, in a post-Roe world. Amen. And you recently attended, Herbie, the Road to Majority Conference in Nashville, Tennessee. Was there an emphasis on protecting the right to life there? What did you take away from your time there? Yeah, the biggest thing that I took away is, you know, every speaker that came to the lectern really was concerned about life. Uh, they really were talking about not just the ending of Roe v. Wade, but the protection of life and human flourishing in the womb and outside the womb. And it was really encouraging to hear congressmen, senators, uh, elected officials, and those who hope to be elected that were not just talking about the end of abortion, but were truly talking about a pro-life ethic of caring for men, women, boys, and girls that, as we know, are made in the very image of God. And so that was just the encouraging message. And certainly there were other messages, but that was a common theme amongst every speaker. So wonderful. Herbie Newell, President and Executive Director of Lifeline Children's Services, thanks for joining us and for the work that you do. God bless. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Until next time, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on social media at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. You can also send us a message by emailing prolifeweekly at EWTN.com. We love to hear from you. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.